So the reason for the disclaimer today is that I'm going to be talking about what I'm calling modern romance today. Specifically, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about dating in the 21st century. And I know you're looking at me and you're thinking, who is a better expert on dating in the 21st century than Brad Allen Zinn the first? Right? I mean, if you know my history, you know I got married at the age of 25, uh, which means that I was a good five, two to five years younger than the average American is when they get eight, when they get married. So I have two to five less years of experience than the average uh, American single person to get married. So that's one reason to listen to what I have to say. Uh, the second is I've been married uh, for 14 years. Yay! So I sort of got the first year of the new millennium. So I, can, I think that makes me an expert on dating in the 21st century. So I just want to admit right off the top of the bat, I'm not even pretending to be an expert on dating in the 21st century, certainly from a firsthand point of view. Um, but it's important to talk about these things because I look around this room and I see there's quite a few single people here today. And so what I've done is I've spent the last, oh, I don't know, month or so reading books, um, talking to social scientists that I happen to know who study dating, uh, and talking to and emailing with some of the single people in our church uh, to do a little research and kind of get myself up to speed to the best of my ability. Now, I'm not claiming to be an expert because I think that would be foolish, but one thing I did notice And I did pick up on, as I talked with people, is it seems that the things that are troubling in dating relationships, although it takes different forms, also tend to be the same things uh, that are challenges or opportunities in relationships in general. And the more I looked at this, the more I talked to people, the more I realized I think everybody can learn from this discussion, no matter where you are in life, whether you're uh, dating, whether you've been married for 30 years. Um, or you're in some other place in life. So as a non-expert, here goes. Um, So I did some research, and one of the things I did was reach out to one of our small groups. There's a small group uh, targeted specifically to single people in our church. and got a lot of good feedback, including a poem that is helping me get a different kind of grip on the online dating scene. Now, in 2000, people did date online, uh, but it was weird. It was a little bit weird back then. It's not like it is today. Uh, If you met someone online, there was a little bit of a stigma there, and you were afraid they might have two heads um, and maybe a gun in their pocket. But things have changed dramatically, and so I want to invite uh, Lauren Yates up here to share a poem that she's written. Woo, give it up for her. So this is a poem that I've written about some of my experiences with online dating. Um, It's called Failed OkCupid Dates 1 through 5, A Suite. (laughs) One, the first date wanted to see that bar all his friends had been talking about. We met at a Starbucks. He and I chatted over coffee. Once each was confident the other wasn't a serial killer, we made our way to the bar. So this is it, he said, taking a picture of the door. I asked if we were going to go inside. He said, no, I just wanted to see it, then began to walk away. The second said he found my profile accidentally. Like he was giving me a favor by messaging me, even though we weren't quiver matches. If he didn't already know me, then of course finding my profile would have been accidental. He and I went to the art museum. Upon seeing William Blake's illustrations, he yelled, this guy sure had it bad for Jesus. I thought of leaving while he was in the restroom, but forgot men don't take very long. The third and I bonded over old shows from the WB before it became the CW. 
on Facebook chat, he messaged me to say he couldn't talk, then invited me to join him in the shower. I proceeded to block him. <laughs> he found me again on OkCupid and begged for a second chance. After the 4th of July fireworks, he insisted upon driving me home the five blocks. I tried getting out across the street from my place, but he insisted upon curbside service. He did a U-turn at the stop sign on the corner, got T-boned, then lied about it to the cops, even telling the officer, I didn't know it was a one-way street. The fourth said I wouldn't know any of the bands he likes, that I wouldn't know anything about Radiohead, Pavement, or Dinosaur Jr. I told him about my background as a music journalist and my affinity for noise rock in response to the co-opting of punk, and that maybe he shouldn't say that he's 5'8 when he's clearly 5'5. Five five. <laughs> the fifth was a 99% match. 27, unemployed, living with his mother. He said it was only temporary. I asked how long he'd been there. Two years. When he said his idea of a big decision was picking what to eat for lunch, I dumped him in the middle of Ikea. He begged me to let him put my furniture together. It took him eight hours, and he had studied to be a carpenter. I tell myself I'm done with online dating. You know it's bad when you recognize OkCupid users on Tinder and Craigslist? I tell myself I'm grateful for the stories, that I'm too picky, that jokes about crushing on God should be charming. I tell myself I deserve better, that I'll be alone forever, that maybe the next one will be different. I've had three accounts, been straight, bi, and gay, and still nothing close to true love. Maybe somebody out there is trying to tell me I need to be happy on my own, that I should enjoy having the whole bed to myself, that I should feel proud for refusing to settle, for being whole enough to be on my own. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. Thank you very much. Well, I thought I'd start today by giving you a little bit of a history of dating. You may not realize this, but the way that couples couple these days is relatively new phenomenon in the history of the world. So for the first several however many millennia that people were getting together, when people look back through history, the way that people got together was through their family. Specifically, families arranged marriages pretty much universally across all cultures. That lasted for thousands and thousands of years. It began to change uh, early or late in the 19th century, particularly in the early in the 20th century, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution uh, changed things a little bit. All of a sudden, there was less need for family unions to survive. So marriage was a matter of survival for families uh, for years and years. You needed people, for example, to work on your farm because most of the world was an agrarian culture, meaning that everybody was mostly farmers. And so you needed children to weed and hoe and harvest and do the work of your farm so that everyone didn't die, right? The Industrial Revolution happens. People start getting different kinds of jobs and different employment. So less need uh, existed for family unions to survive through marriage. And less need existed for children to work the farm. And so marriage started to get delayed a bit. So where people married in their teens... Now people might marry in their 20s. And a new thing developed because you had these single people as a category, probably for the first time in history, is they started mingling and doing this thing called dating. Now dating, as it existed in the 1920s, was different from how it is today. So people in the 20s, for example, dated lots of folks. It was a social way to hang out, to have fun. But if you were on a date with someone... It didn't necessarily mean there was a romantic interest. In fact, what it showed was that you were a fun person. So if you went on lots of dates, you weren't considered a playboy or loose or any of those negative types of words. You were considered fun. And if you didn't go on a lot of dates, you were considered a dud. 
But you can go on as many dates as you want. It's just a way to interact. And when you did settle on one particular person, uh, you were basically engaged. So there wasn't this thing of, well, I'm just dating this guy. He's my boyfriend. Or I'm dating this woman. She's my girlfriend. It was like serious. Okay? And that lasted until about uh, the mid-40s during World War II when an interesting thing happened when a lot of men were overseas. And so the ratio of men to women changed. This um, dating for fun, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, and once you had a boyfriend, you were practically engaged, or a girlfriend, you were practically engaged. Two, uh, the, the ratios are off here. And basically, I'm going to lock down this person as my boyfriend. So the category of boyfriend developed into this thing that was we're exclusive, but it doesn't mean we're getting married, right? Sound a little bit more familiar to what you're used to. So you can have a boyfriend, you can have a girlfriend now, and so it doesn't mean you're going to get married. Whereas in the 20s, it meant, whoa, you were really serious, okay? But it was different from what we see here and today. For example, what people were looking for in relationships back then was still skewed towards the practical. So roles in marriage, for example, were very well defined. In particular, men did certain things, women did certain things. And they were still, marriage was still considered a place of security where people could have a family, provide financially, and for someone to take care, someone to take care of the home, someone to take care of the finances. And sociologists call this a companionate marriage. There was less pressure to find the perfect person, and good enough was often considered good enough. It's not that people didn't marry for love, but romantic feelings often started with the simmer and built to a boil. Now, this changed in the 60s and the 70s, particularly as women were afforded more and more opportunities outside of the home and more and more independence economically. So making a family and filling specific roles no longer was the main focus for coupling, for example. So instead, personal fulfillment took center stage and people began to look for love and fulfillment out of a marriage partner up front. The idea of finding a soulmate became more and more popular and one of the main reasons for marriage. And a simmer was no longer good enough. Good enough was no longer good enough. People want to start with a boil, and they never want to turn the heat down. Sound a little bit more familiar? Now, people's options were still somewhat limited to who they could meet and who they could marry, but that changed and has changed now in the 21st century. So what I'm calling modern romance looks like this. You have nearly unlimited options for partners at your fingertips from all different backgrounds and all different perspectives. You have OkCupid, Tinder, Match.com, eHarmony, and many, many more ways to meet thousands and thousands of people. It's not just the people on your block or in your neighborhood or in your city, even more. And the common perspective today seems to be this. I need to find someone who will be exactly what I need them to be all the time, and I have thousands of options. So I'm defining modern romance as this. I'm saying we're shopping for fulfillment. We're not trying to lock down security per se, although that can be part of things, but we're looking for someone to be our other half. Actually, I, I, I asked some people in our church to send their opinions to me on this, and Here's a few examples of how single people I know describe this experience. And these came from conversations and emails. Uh, someone writes in all caps, so many options. And they go on, they say, there's an article about online dating in Philly that talks about this so articulately. I can't search for it right now because I'm at work, but it uses the metaphor of jam. If you have three jams to choose between, and there's one you know you don't like, and one you know you're allergic to, then the choice is essentially made for you. But if you have 20 jams to choose from that are all more or less equal to one another, then you may start basing your decision on superficial things like what color the label is 
or whether the container is glass or plastic. I think with dating, it's the same thing. You start eliminating people based on their beard length or the fact that they don't listen to Radiohead instead of basing your decision on whether this person agrees with your core values. Someone else writes, dates can become like interviews. That's why I'm using this term shopping for fulfillment. This person writes, feeling judged and judging others based on how a few dates go. A lot of dates don't involve doing activities together, but are sitting down to dinner or coffee and drilling each other. And in general, the folks I talked to were concerned that they were falling prey to a consumer culture. That's a term that came up in more um, comments and conversations than any other. Consumer culture noting that with social media and a more transient society, there is always a sense of so many options, direct quote, and the pressure to find, quote, Mr. or Mrs. Right, if the one we're looking for really even exists. So this consumeristic approach to relationships, just, it just isn't sitting well, at least with the people that I talk to either. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And one of the questions I ask people and I ask myself is, why is this? And I think that at least part of it involves what we've been looking at throughout this entire series. We've just been talking about how can I have deep relationships? And the common theme we've come back to every week is that we have access to more relationships than we've ever had at any other time in the history of the world. We have thousands of connections, all of which tend to be an inch deep but we're looking for some connections that are deeper than that, where we're actually known, where people know who we really are, and they value that, they respect that, they honor that, they encourage that. And what people are missing is that deeper sense of connection of actually being known. And we've used this diagram to help make sense of that. The diagram here is that in the center, we see our true selves, that's who you are. That's who God created you to be, right? But then we're born, and we live life. Things happen. Uh, we make mistakes. We hurt people. People hurt us. And around that center core of who we are grows a second circle, which is shame, which doesn't feel good, which makes us feel like we're not worthy of love. And so to convince ourselves that we are worthy of love and to convince other people that we are worthy of love, we create this false self, which never has been more pronounced than our society right now, where we're constantly making profiles on lots of different types of sites. And that's who we present to people for why we're awesome, why we're okay. Now, consumerist dating... Shopping for our soulmate leaves us in the place of emphasizing the false self because we're always like on an interview. We're being drilled. We're trying to present ourselves on different apps and different websites. Everyone is always auditioning. And as many people or many single people have told me, this is, and here's the word I heard a lot, exhausting. Exhausting and often unfulfilling because no one's ever seeing the real you. And there's no intimacy. What we get is a bunch of people's false selves bouncing off of each other, auditioning for each other, judging one another. But what people want is intimacy. So what do people do? Well, I talked to a social scientist, interviewed her, and she gave me some insights on what can happen now is when people really want intimacy, they binge. I talked to a woman, she's a social scientist, she studies hooking up. And this is the way she described hooking up to me. Um, she says, hooking up is jumping to levels of intense intimacy with strangers or people with whom there's no expectation of relational commitment. Oftentimes we think of hooking up as in some sort of physical interaction, so making out with someone you've never met, um, sleeping with someone where there's no commitment to a relationship. And there's all things along that spectrum of physical interaction, but it's intense intimacy with no commitment. Sometimes it has nothing to do with uh, physical intimacy. Sometimes it's emotional. 
So I've heard story of people, and they'll say, I stayed up all night talking to this person I never met about my deepest fears and deepest passions. But there's no relationship there. There's no commitment. So the next time they saw that person, it was incredibly awkward. So we binge because we need intimacy. We want intimacy, but the only thing we typically bounce off of is the false selves that we put out there, the profiles that we create, the reasons that we tell everyone we're so awesome. A couple things about this. The scientists, social scientists I talked to said, first of all, not as many people hook up as we think hook up. That was a point she made several times to me. There's this perception that everyone hooks up. And so sometimes get people feel like they're in this position where that's the, it's either stay home or hook up. That's their two options. She said that's not really accurate. She's done thousands or at least hundreds. I don't want to exaggerate. Let's say she's done hundreds of interviews, and that's just not the case. Um, but what she's also found is eventually, usually almost everyone finds these types of interactions unfulfilling. And I think this makes sense to me when we consider how deep relationships form. So if you'll show the next diagram, this is something I've shown in two other talks. Deep relationships form when we're able to be vulnerable with someone else. And when they come in contact with that vulnerability, instead of pulling back or rejecting us, they double down. They accept us. They affirm us. They're committed And when vulnerability and commitment combine, what happens is that circle, that inner circle, that true self of who you are, underneath the false mask, underneath the shame, is affirmed. It's encouraged. It's able to come out. And as that part of you comes out, then you're able to be vulnerable in a new way. And as long as the people you're in relationship with, and they won't always be perfect because no one is, affirm that, maybe not, you know... your honesty, they meet you there, they double down, they don't reject you, they're in with you, then that affirms who your true self is. You can start to break down the false self. You can even start to break down the shame that's undergirding the false self that we all create to show people how awesome we are. But when vulnerability happens and it's not met by commitment, our true selves aren't affirmed. The opposite happens. On some level, we're rejected. And when vulnerability is not met by commitment, this form of rejection leads to an increase of that circle of shame that sort of lives sometimes around our true selves. So what I'd like to suggest is that perhaps that is the fatal flaw of a consumeristic approach to relationships, that there's always this out. There's always this way not to commit. There's always this option to leave, i.e. there's always this way to judge the person who's shown just a little bit of vulnerability to you. And so depth of relationship never happens because the whole circle breaks down before you get to affirming your true self, which is when we feel that kind of intimacy with someone else. I read someone who defined a consumer relationship as this. He says, a consumer relationship is one you have with a vendor as long as they give you a product at a good price. But if you're always looking for an upgrade, think about cell phones. If you're always looking for an upgrade and there's no commitment, instead of commitment, all we have is judgment. And we judge each other by leaving and shame results. And my question is, and what I sense people hoping for is a better way. There's got to be a better way. And by the way, can you see how this applies to way more than dating relationships? And basically any relationship in your life where you want to have some level of connection and intimacy, it's the same principles at work. So is there a better way to do relationships? Is there a better way to approach dating So again, with all humility, having been out of the game for 14 years, having only spent uh, five years less than many people in that game, I'm going to suggest one. Um, And I think there's some truth here, and I think it can be to your benefit. I think we all can learn from this. 
And here's what I'm going to suggest to start. Let's stop expecting another human being to fulfill us. Basically, I, I blame Tom Cruise for the idea that we need another person to be whole. You guys uh, recognize this picture? It's a little washed out. But uh, anyone know what movie this is from? Jerry. Jerry? All right. A cultural reference that's not outdated. <laughs> a movie that I can reference people still get. I think this happened in the 90s. But yet, it's, it's been enough of a thing. So Jerry, anyone know what his famous line in this scene is? Yeah, say it again louder. You complete me. What a load of hooey. That's one of my main themes here. Uh, does Seriously, I mean, now I'm kidding when I say I blame Tom Cruise. I know there's some Tom Cruise fans here. But this is a perfect example of how the soulmate approach to self-fulfillment is expressed. The idea that we have to find that one person out there who will make us whole. I think this can be dangerous. One of the things I did as I was researching for this is I, I wanted to see uh, what the Bible and what Christians were thinking about dating already. So I did think, I don't know if I, this is the best thing. So I Googled it. <laughs> what do Christians say about dating? What does the Bible say about dating? And I would find a lot of articles and things like that, but I'd also find people's responses to what they'd experienced um, growing up in churches, um, some positive, of course, but I heard of this phrase that I'd never heard before, half a cookie. You guys heard this? It's this idea that if you're not married, you're somehow half of a person. Half a cookie, not a whole cookie, but half a cookie. And that until you're married... You really can't participate in life the way you should. You can't participate in the church in the full way that a married person might be able to. And you're just limited. You're almost like you're half a person. You need to be completed. That's just not true. I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. I can't even find that anywhere in my personal experience. But it's common enough that I saw it more than once. And actually, I don't think that has anything to do with following Jesus or perspective that comes from Jesus or, his, or any of the scriptures in any way, shape, or form. I think that really is a reflection of the church of Jerry Maguire more than it is what we see in the Christian scriptures. Consider this passage. This is in your bulletin, Colossians chapter 2. It's two quick verses. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in body form. And in Christ... You have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. When I read that, what I hear is the fullness of all the deity that was in Christ is available to every person in Christ. Single, married, divorced, something else. It's there for you. Now. Not someday once you meet that person who will complete you. If anything, it's the opposite. It's saying, look, the thing that will complete you is what I can give you, Christ, speaking for Christ. The way I can come into your life. The need that I can fill, you can't fill with another person. And think about just some of the biggest heroes just in the Christian scriptures. Who is the most famous guy who started churches ever? The guy named Paul. Traveled all over the Middle East, East Asia, parts of Europe. Did all these startup congregations. Like, blew the doors open. Was the first. Not married. Single. Actually wrote, I wish everybody was single, like me. Because I've had all this extra time and energy because I'm not putting it into a relationship with a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. I also said it's good to be married too. But you don't hear that perspective too often, do you? Who is the biggest hero of the New Testament or the Christian scriptures? The biggest. It's an easy question. Don't think too hard. Jesus. 
33-year-old single guy started the whole thing, is the person that Christians say we should emulate him. Never got married. Single to the cross. If you're single, you're a whole cookie now. Okay? And you can lead you can be productive in society and in this church. There are no limitations on you because you're not married. And if you're waiting to be completed by a person, or if you're married and you're waiting for your spouse to complete you, they can't. I'm not saying we shouldn't expect things. I'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm not saying that, oh, let's just go for good enough. But I'm saying that person's role can never be to complete you. Jerry Maguire was wrong. I want to see the movie of their life five years later. And if he hasn't changed his perspective a little bit and she hasn't changed hers, they're going to be miserable because they're not enough for each other. Nor should they try to be everything. I think Lauren wondered in her poem if we ought not be whole enough to be single. And it seems from what we see in the Bible that yes, yes, God wants us to be whole in him, fulfilled. Fulfilled in life regardless of our relationship status. Let me suggest two questions to ask yourself. I think these are great if you're single and looking. Great if you've been married for 20 years. What has God made you to do? That's the first question. And the second question is, where do you need to grow? And let me suggest your energy might be better spent, perhaps, focusing on questions like this than focusing on finding the person to make you whole. I'm not saying don't spend any time looking for anybody. But if you can figure out what God's made you to do and figure out where you need to grow, I think you have a much better chance of finding the person you need to be with if you need to be with another person. And the better you know the answers to those questions, the more you can order your life towards Christ in a way that will bring fulfillment to you and attract the type of person to be a good partner. So instead of completion, let me just suggest that maybe we should instead look for a partner. Not a completer, but a partner. And from this perspective, marriage becomes less a need and more of an opportunity. An opportunity for greater mission in life and greater growth. There's a proverb in chapter 27 that says, as iron, sharp, let me try that. as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I love that imagery. You've got these two imperfect, this is how I picture it, two imperfect pieces of iron. This might be like a reference to swords. So you've got these dull swords, dirty, worn down maybe a little bit, but valuable with purpose for existing. And they're sharpened through contact with other imperfect, though meaningful and purposeful, articles, swords, sharpening stones, whatever it might be. Maybe that's a better picture for what marriage should be. Not finding the person that completes you, but finding the person that will sharpen you. And if you know what you're called to in life, if you know where you need to grow, you can look for that type of person. When I was 24, 25, I didn't get a lot of things right. <laughs> I don't think when it came to relationships. But maybe I got this one right. I knew I wanted to marry somebody that would challenge me in my life. And 
I nailed that one on the head in the best possible way. I was this punk kid who wanted to start a church that would be super cool and be underground like in a club, you know, and have the wildest musicians you ever saw. And, you know, we would have great worship and the Holy Spirit would be there and it would be awesome. And a lot of that picture is pretty cool, right? I love the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I married Becca and she cared about justice. <laughs> she cared about people on the edges that I tended to ignore. And for the last 15 years has been a positive challenge to me every single day. And I'm a different person, I think a better person, and I feel like my life looks a little bit more like Jesus than had I never met her. Find someone who will sharpen you, who you're married to right now. You're, there's a reason you're married to them. Maybe even some of the things that drive you crazy are an edge to sharpen you. And that person isn't there to complete you, although they're there to love you and support you and sacrifice for you. But they're there to be a sharpening tool so that the two of you can grow into better people, more connected to Jesus, who can make more of a difference in this life. So what I'm suggesting is that imperfections in the context of mutual commitment to growth might be just what we need. But there's a tough thing with this, and that's that second little thing after vulnerability comes commitment. That's tough. Uh, there's a sociologist named Barry Schwartz who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he said that when we have more options... We're actually less satisfied and sometimes have a harder time making a choice at all. Think about this. Last time you ordered something online, how much time did you spend researching that blender <laughs> or that movie before you bought the tickets or, I don't know, the bike lock, whatever it is you're looking for? I bet you, if you look back, you probably spent like 10, 15 minutes. We don't just go to the, you know, there's so many options for everything. And in relationships, there's lots of options and way to meet more people than we have ever imagined. And there's this fear of missing out. You're with someone. And on your phone, seeing how awesome this other person's relationship is with their girlfriend, their spouse. Instead of enjoying what you might have in the moment, you're judging it. Could I do better? Good enough is no longer good enough. We're looking for soulmates in marriage. And even when we find who we think are our soulmates, if we start feeling unhappy, we get divorced. So many options are available. How can we commit to just one? Now, what I'm not saying is that we just settle. Good enough may not be good enough. But I'm also saying let's not judge either. Here's what I'm suggesting. In relationships, I feel like our opportunity, our invitation is not to settle or to judge, but instead to hope. And this is a life principle. You come to our membership class, I'm going to talk about this, so you'll hear a little bit of this two times today. What you don't need in your life, what will bring you down, what will kill your relationships, what will keep you from finding a person who can sharpen you, or one of the things, is idealism. Idealism doesn't come from God. Idealism, because the world we live in is a world in tension. No one's perfect. The kingdom of God is here, and it's not here. It's already, and it's not yet. So to live in that tension, we can't be idealists, because idealists see one flaw and say the whole thing is corrupt. 
What we want to be is hopeful people. Hopeful people can live in the tension, knowing that there will be faults, there will be imperfections, but seeing what can be, what's coming around the corner, and then can offer grace to people in their lives and the relationships in their lives. Hopeful people have a lot better chance of starting and finding and developing healthy, deep relationships. It's hope that allows us to commit to vulnerable, imperfect, flawed people. That when we hear their story of brokenness, the mistake they made, or even when we hear their dream for their life, which doesn't sound that good to us, we can engage. We don't back out. We double down. So with that in mind, two quick suggestions for dating couples. First is this. Work on something together. You're looking for a partner. Partner on something. Partner. Find something new. Project in the church. Project in your neighborhood. Something important. Do it together. See how it goes. Find some of the rough edges, right? Finish the project. Work it through to the end. You can really learn a lot about someone. You know, oh God, the cliche is marriages work, right? Ah, it's true, right? Aspects of it. So start, try and work on something now. And see how it goes. My second little tip, work through a rough patch, at least one. You don't, you're not committed. You don't, in some sense, senses, you don't have to, you're not married. You don't have to stay with this person forever. But any relationship is going to have rough patches, Work through one before you throw in the towel. Work through it well, and on the other end, see what you learn. You might find out maybe this isn't the best fit for me, and then you have the possibility of moving on as friends, real friends. But you'll, you're never going to be able to get to the point, you have to commit on some level. Let vulnerability, and here's the last thing too, um, let vulnerability and commitment grow together at the same pace. So it's not either no vulnerability or your whole soul on a shingle for the person to see. How about they grow together? A little bit of vulnerability with a little bit of commitment. And at the same pace, develop as you work on things together, as you have some rough patches and you see how you can work through it. In this last area, um, I just want a, a quick word about sex. So obviously sex deserves its own sermon series, right? But so many single people mention that this is a big deal. <laughs> so let me just offer a few perspectives that I think can be helpful and maybe give them to you as something to chew on. You know, one of the things that was not fun for me in Googling uh, Christians in dating was some of the things I came across. So, for example, I came across this one. It was kind of like, I guess it wasn't like a BuzzFeed list, but it was kind of like the top ten commandments for Christian dating, I think is what it was called. Commandment number one was something about finding a, combat, a compatible person. Commandment two through ten were all about how not to have sex. It's like, wow, that's... The, so find a compatible person and don't sleep with them. It's like, hmm, this is the best you can do in terms of giving me some ideas about how to... Uh, date in a healthy way and develop some relationships. And to be honest, so much in Christian uh, culture is centered on how sex is a big deal, right? And I feel like there's a stream uh, in Christianity that's, that says our culture, our wider culture, sort of minimizes or denigrates the sexual experience, commodifies it in the type of language we've been talking about. And I think there's some real truth to that. I feel like our culture sometimes doesn't give sex its due in terms of how powerful, how big 
It really is. So I do think sex is a big deal, but I'm afraid that we've weighted it way too much in our lives in terms of how we feel about ourselves as people, what's available to us in life, and making sex nine out of ten emphases on a healthy dating relationship just seems way out of whack to me. You know, so much on when you have sex and what that says about you as a person. I think the result is a spirituality that is unhealthy and a perspective on sex that is unhealthy. We don't have time to get in deep here. And I apologize for that. But I think whether you have sex before you're married, whether you live with your partner before you're married, it's all meaningful. It is. But it's just one part of a thousand parts of wholeness, healthy relationships in our lives. And for some reason, it's become almost the whole thing. And that's damaging. It's not healthy. And it skews what healthy sexuality is in our lives. It's not the thing. Nor does it determine your whole spiritual life or acceptance by God or welcome in the church. And I don't think stigmas at all are appropriate. So, yeah, it's a big deal. But it's not a big deal in that sense. Again, a longer conversation needed there. But the second thing I like perspective to give is to remember this. Part of my thesis today is that vulnerability without commitment leads to increased shame in our lives. And one of the major benefits of a covenantal relationship is that it creates a place of safety. So where there's a promise, there should also be commitment. And when you say that you're re- a place where you say that your relationship is more important than what the person can do for you, then the audition process is over. Neither partner has to worry about being judged or good enough to keep the other person around. And this means there's a chance for real vulnerability, communication, and even weakness. A consumer relationship always has with it an element of judgment, and judgment produces shame. So keep that in mind. Chew on that. And third, I hope this is helpful. Living in a relationship of increasing intimacy without sex is actually great preparation for marriage. Now, I knew I'd say that, and I'd probably get a few chuckles. <laughs> what I'm not saying is when, when people are married, they don't have sex. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is sometimes in relationships, there are simmer points. Sometimes there are boiling points. And when you're in a real relationship with someone, um, there are seasons where sex is either more difficult or less available or not available at all. So there's this myth that sometimes is out there that once you get married, you know, it's sex on demand or something. It's easy. You don't have to worry about that area of your life anymore, celibacy, for example. But see, when you get married, sometimes people get sick. Sometimes you live at a distance. Sometimes you have a couple kids. Sometimes your relationship just is in a bad place, and you've got to work on it to build up some intimacy again. So married or single, it's important to understand how to live a healthy lifestyle, how to process and express practically sexual desires when sex isn't an option, when faithfulness to your spouse means sex isn't an option. 
There's seasons. And you'll still find yourself in situations like that after you've been married. And this is what we're working toward. Not relationships with no sex, but relationships that focus on more than just my immediate needs. And we want to get past a consumer approach to relationships. That is so exhausting and unfulfilling. And the opportunity to be self-sacrificing for another person. The opportunity to be a self-sacrificing person that finds partnerships in community that help us become who we're made to be as we offer the same to others. And I think this is what the process of dating is meant to lead to in marriage. A partnership that empowers us to grow more into the callings of God in our life. Not through settling, not through judging, but through hope. Let's pray. Father, I feel like a very imperfect person to speak on this topic. But my prayer is that just as we learn to be vulnerable and double down in relationships with people, that you would fill this room with tons of grace. Help us to learn. Help us to follow. Help us to be free to make mistakes. Help us to be able to not let any mistake, any perspective, label us. I pray you in our romantic relationships, that you would help us to get that circle going of vulnerability and commitment and affirming our true selves. And I pray just even in the area of community, you would help those circles to develop and grow so that we can get past who we want people to think we are we can get past the shame that comes through judgment and get down to knowing some real people. Pray for grace.